how do lay people handle, curb and eradicate sexual desire? It's a very tortuous suffering where many people have been handling it, waging war with it for many times, or even throughout their entire lifetime. <laughs> I seek your compassion and wisdom in teaching us, in dealing with it. It's, uh, you know, this is why there's seven billion of us <laughs> growing. It's quite a natural um, process. And, uh, you know, we have the, we've got the jivita, life force energy, like all sentient creatures, they have to generate. They have to regenerate. That's their nature there. It's called a uh, bija karma. Uh, bija di niyama. It's the nature. One of the laws of nature is to regenerate. So our programming, our body programming is to make sure that happens. Uh, and so sexual desire or sexual energy is natural, natural energy uh, that we all have. So we had must differentiate between sexual energy and sexual desire. Because uh, generally, the main theme in cultivation is, it's not just for labor of everybody, you know, people basically, is to find a way to check, re- restrain the outflow of that and re-channel or channel sexual energy elsewhere. Because it's a basic, it's a vitalizing fire element, you might say. So essentially, why we call it brahmacharya, or the spiritual life, is generally associated with celibacy. And it's also associated with the Brahma Vihara. So probably one of the most helpful things is to cultivate a lot of Brahma Vihara. Uh, that's metta, karuna, mudita, opeka. So that the energy of sexuality, the, that kind of vigor and vitality goes into the, into the heart. And then it's, uh, you can kind of use it for that. It's, it's, I think why the Buddha recommended practice it himself is because there's such a powerful energy in sexuality that if you can rein it in, you've got a tremendous source of, of energy for practice. And so that's why we do this. So you kind of as you restrain and then you keep putting that energy elsewhere. And the obvious ways of restraint is, first of all, there's the asupakamatan, which is the reflections or bringing up the nimittas, signs, images, impressions of your own body, breaking up the organs, the less attractive parts of it, and other bodies of other people, same sort of thing. And then you begin to also notice that sexual energy, actually, you don't really feel it with dead bodies. So it's not just bodies, it's particular signs and perceptions, you know, what, what triggers sexual attraction for, between uh, a man and a woman and vice versa, these particular meanings. Uh, so we also use wisdom. Now the quality and then restraining, if you can bring that energy back into your body and connect it to breathing so you get a certain heating experience with sexual desire and you just keep breathing into it and drawing it up through your body and sending it around your body so the breath breathing both cools it and dissipates it's quite a tight pulling kind of energy sexual energy it burns and it pulls and it's uh, fiery like, so it's often likened to a dragon or a serpent. So it's got a lot of fire in it. So 
you know, sitting strongly, drawing energy in through the body, and using entering samadhi, then that certainly contains energy. And then at other times, one cultivates soft gaze, so you don't focus, you focus, try to focus less on objects, other people's bodies that you, that, that, that trigger that. You also cultivate in your own body a sense of um, dispassion towards it. The more you put your interest into mental states, heart states, that helps to turn the energy another way. But it's like it's really, you know, lifetime of recognizing this is what you this is what you get when you get born. <laughs> a certain time you get switched on. So you generally always have to keep aware of that potential. And to, it's, it's really only the uh, non-returners who this energy is completely dissolved into immaterial states. So that's the long project, is to give more and more energy, more and more attention to what we call immaterial, measureless states, such as the Brahvihara, the measureless abidings and samadhi then it's all used up. You spend it. This requires some cultivation, and the rest of the time you're just uh, restraining and, and turning away, and these other reflections that help to hold it, bring it in, gather it up. Self-guilt. How does one overcome this? It's quite obvious. Asian culture, to be apologetic, hence upbringing makes more susceptible continually beat oneself in the sense that I should have done much, much better. Why did I behave such? This tends to crop up regularly during meditations. Well, it's, it's quite a global topic, and it's to do, you certainly as you see, it's to do with social conditioning and, and performance. Uh, so the, the imperative to achieve, to be an achiever, and that can be in terms of intelligence or vigor or character or beauty or anything. You know, you've got to be good and best and, and so forth. So this means you're never quite good enough as you are. And essentially, the main theme here is to cultivate metta towards oneself. And metta towards oneself just means that we imagine or even visualize a lot of goodwill coming this way. So you might sit and picture a kind of a warm light coming towards you. Uh, or if you like warm lights, I do. And just bathing you. And it's a sense of maybe well, maybe well. Picking up an image of being received in a benevolent way. And so this is the kind of, you're just finding a particular image or a particular set of uh, themes that generate this quality of metta towards oneself. And most people find this more difficult than meta towards other people because you can't see yourself. You can see other people, you can see their good actions, you can see something likable. But when you come to yourself, it's difficult to see what that is. <laughs> so there's a certain sense of just having to work at what creates the right image or the right theme that brings this quality of goodwill towards yourself. And it should be goodwill to yourself, not because you're good, but just because you exist. It's kind of unconditioned, unconditioned uh, acceptance. It doesn't mean everything I do is fantastic and I'm the best person in the world. It just means whatever I do, whatever I am, that's welcome, that's fine. 
Now what I do, you know, maybe this isn't so good and that is good. But there's a difference between what we do and what we are. You see what I mean? So this is where it gets confused with, with a lot of expectation on performance. People tend to identify what they are with what they do and how good they are at doing things. And there's a sort of nervousness about not having done enough. If you haven't done enough, then you're not good enough. <laughs> but actually, sometimes you know, you, what you can do isn't always available. So then people get very busy doing some of stuff, doing things, to feel they're doing good enough. Fussing around, doing all kinds of things. Uh, they don't need to do, but they're trying to do something to give them the feeling they're being useful, busy, efficient, effective, loyal, uh, cooperative, helpful. And they get over, people who overdo, overdo, overachieve. And then it's just it's important to learn to relax and cultivate metta to me, yourself, when you are being useless. When you are doing nothing in particular, just being useless. And see yourself as another. You know, there's a certain, uh, when you're not measuring how well you are, how, what you, you know, in terms of you're coming up to some kind of standard of, of productivity or uh, however, whatever your, whatever your measurements are, you know, I'm not polite enough, I'm clumsy, I'm awkward, I, I don't, I'm not very brilliant, my mind doesn't work very well, all these sorts of things that uh, we can find fault with ourselves. Well, who's measuring? Eventually, you're the one who's doing the measurement, or something in you is doing that. And it's a feature I call the inner critic or the inner tyrant, because it bullies you a lot. And it, whatever you do isn't quite good enough, and you can see the, the mistake you made. If you're doing a lot, then you can find fault with that. You're trying to prove how good you are, so you're critical of that. If you don't do anything, you're lazy. If you're doing too much, you're being bossy, getting in the way. If you try to help people, you're trying to control everything. You're a control freak. If you don't, if you don't, then you don't take any responsibility. It's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> and then, if you ever have a good thought towards yourself, then you're being proud. And then when you get when your mind gets all tightened up, then you can't meditate either. So you can't meditate. That's another thing that's wrong with you. You can't. You're not a very happy person. You're because you you know you shouldn't be so depressed. <laughs> so you can get this going with just about anything. And in meditation, you can have a uh, more or less that there's no limit in meditation to what you can find fault with. You can't meditate. You can't concentrate. If you feel sleepy, your posture's no good. You've been listening to dumb talks all these years. You still don't get the point. You're stupid as well. Stupid. And you only do three hours a day, so you're lazy, stupid, lazy, can't meditate, can't concentrate, sleepy, dull, and dim-witted. And another thing, <laughs> you haven't got into this state or another, which you should have done by now after all these years. Surely you should have got somewhere by now after all these years. You know, Ten years, five years, four years, twenty years, you should have got somewhere by now. You haven't got anywhere, have you? So it's kind of critical thing going on. And uh, let me think, anything else? Well, you eat too much, sleep too much, talk too much, drink too much. <laughs> or not enough, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> 
So sometimes you actually want to kind of really listen to this voice and play with it. Like, see if you can make it exaggerate till you start laughing. You know how, how ridiculous it all is <laughs> to have this thing going on. And if you really uh, turn the volume up and try and record what it's saying. So you get some, you, this is called stepping back. You get an, a sense of, of emotional detachment from that voice, that mood. Here it is, and you name it. This is the inner critic. And enormous numbers of people have this to some degree or another. Uh, here it is. It's like, this is, this is the, he just walked in through the door, got into my head, you know. So then it gives you some sense of at least placing it. It's called mindfulness, a frame of reference. And then how do you feel with that? Is it, can it ever say a single good thing about you? Like, well, you tried hard and you are persistent and, you know, you do occasionally do a good deed or something. Uh, so you can't do that. So you, you, you get objective or put it in perspective and then begin to get a sense of detachment from it and deliberately relax because it always wants to get you kind of tightened up, contracted and defensive. Just keep relaxing. And bring up the idea, what would it be like if there was a kind of, like a, a global rule, a, a rule like, today nobody's allowed to achieve anything. <laughs> nobody's allowed to achieve anything. Yeah. Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Let's take a, you know, nobody's allowed, you're not allowed to achieve a single thing. Oh, yeah. I think I can do that. Ah, you achieved something. <laughs> But wouldn't it be nice just to realize how you, you have this inner program telling you you should achieve something and be something? Well, what's, what's that? What is it that you could achieve and be? And it's a fantasy, isn't it? It's, it's a fantasy. Because right now, you're like this. You're this now. You can't be anything other than this now, can you? Whatever state... It is. Now it's this. Right? It's not anything other than this. It's not worse than something else or better than something else because it, there's nothing else but this now. Right? You know, for there to be a comparison, there has to be something else to compare it with. But the thing you compare it with isn't here. It's just an idea. Now you're this. Now it's this. And we must accurately respond to this. That we're experiencing now. If you're experiencing guilt, fear, a sense of inadequacy, the response to that has to be kindness, doesn't it? Or acceptance, or sense of compassion, or oh, give her a break, you know, woman stressed out. <laughs> it's, that's got to be the response, isn't it? Then if you do that, then you've achieved something. You achieve the most important thing, which is to learn to respond to what you're experiencing now. There's nothing other to do than that. If you do that, we call this progress. You've stopped chasing rainbows and you're responding to what you're experiencing now. That's practice. That's perfection. 
you're number one. <laughs> there's no race. There's no prizes. There's nobody else. In your chitta, there's nobody else. There's only this. There's not even yourself. There's just this. This procession of mind states. There isn't something else that should be there other than this. The only other thing that should be there, or can be there, is how to respond to this. Whatever it is, whether it's sexual desire, hatred, guilt, jealousy, nasty stuff, vicious stuff, stupid stuff, wonderful stuff, this is it. This is what you respond to. And that's called practice. And your stuff, you're the only one who can do that. There's no one to compare it to. There's no one else can do it for you. This sense of guilt and inadequacy just ties your hands behind your back. You can't do anything. So that's the one to meditate. What's the response to that? You look at, listen to the voice. This is called ill will. So again, you condense the story of the voice. You sort of cut its head off. So instead of listening to the narrative, the emotion is what? Some sense of oppressive hostility. Whatever the reason, whatever the justification, however true it is, here is hostility. What is the response to hostility? He says, stop. May I be well now. And you do that, you know, you're clearing. This is what you do. Everybody has this. I have, I've had this. Many years, this sort of thing. You're not good enough monk, not strict enough, not developed enough. What else do you do wrong? Let me think. Well, probably eat too much or don't eat enough or too lazy, sleep too much, talk too much, smile too much, don't smile enough. Yeah, I haven't got my facts straight, not really studied the Dhamma enough. And blah, blah, blah. Just, just shut up. <laughs> Get on with it. <laughs> How to remain aware while sleeping. I cannot hear or sense anything till I automatically wake up. This may be dangerous in case of emergency. <laughs> That's right, don't have an emergency while you're asleep. <laughs> well, it's difficult to be aware when you, but you, um, you know, I think this is why people get drowsy in, in the morning, is to practice. <laughs> practice being aware while you're half asleep. <laughs> Just selective dullness. The more you develop meditation, particularly in, in, in low energy states, you know, why sometimes we have these all night sittings is because, you know, you, your thinking goes funny and you don't feel very good, but you've got a persistent energy and your energy steadies. So there is some, there's an awareness there. It's not, not verbal, but there's, a, there's enough, there's, a, an awareness there, and that's how you you develop it. And particularly, you know, samadhi again helps with that because with samadhi, as the thinking process quietens down, you have to you start to steer through nonverbal, the nonverbal experience, more like a sensitivity, a bit like walking blindfold. But you you learn to walk by the sense of your feet and your you know. Something like that. So, this means you can extend uh, your meditation in more and more into the sleep. 
And when you lie down, it's also useful to practice reclining meditation, because when you recline, your body goes into a, it generally goes into a lower energy state. So when you recline, do it in a very composed way, either on one side with one leg on top of the other, so it's quite straight, or recline on your back, very flat, again with a composed body. And, you know, you can do it with your legs in, in an arch, so your feet are on the ground and something like that. They'll probably slide down. But reclining meditation, so do it while you're awake, say, you know, middle of the day or some other time when you're not normally sleeping. And you get used to tuning into the sense of the body, the sense of the mind, when you're in this much lower energy state. Lower energy state associated with the reclining position. And then you can sweep from your feet up to your head, open the soles of your feet, open the palms of your hands. If you're lying on your back, you can put the palms of your hands on your body, so it's a quite natural, uh, but it's very, it's composed, it's not sprawled. And um, set up the intention to be awake while you're lying down. And use your scanning to move through the body, and sensing energy, sensing sensations, from the crown of the head down to the toes and back up again. And uh, it's, it's a nice way to finish a day. And it's a nice thing to learn to cultivate if you've got sore back and you, you want to rest your, rest your back like that. So it's good to practice reclining meditation. What do you mean body in a body? Body in a body means the senses uh, arise through the body's sense space, which is essentially, first of all, the tactile sense, which is, this is a body sense, isn't it? Sense of touch, it's not visual. But the body in a body refers to the inner sense body has. For example, the body note that balance, for example, is an inner bodily sense. It's not associated with touch, is it? Yet we all have balance. Contemplating feeling of the body when you sit, how the body feels in and of itself, whether it feels heavy or light, balanced or imbalanced. Sometimes one part of your body feels heavier, one side feels heavier than the other side. Sometimes it feels very tight and tense. Um, sometimes it feels loose, sometimes it um, feels rigid, sometimes it feels very the opposite, you know, too, too soft. So you contemplate these, these bodily experiences and where the, the four elements are a good theme to use as a way of describing or bringing up useful labels, perceptual labels for certain aspects of bodily experience. And so when you're walking along, you can walk along contemplating here is the sense of a certain solidity that's softening or hardening. There's a sense of pliability, which is to do with the water element, the suppleness of the body, the flowingness of the body. Um, the vitality, the heat, and the, and the energy of the body, the fire element, and the experience of movement, which is the air element. And you can also do that when you're breathing in and out, or just sitting. You can contemplate the pressure or the bony structures of the body as earth, and different degrees of earthiness. Sometimes there's just quite firm flesh or soft flesh, or bone, hard. Some places feel quite hard. You feel the sense of warmth, and vitality, and this can move around, but essentially it's generally warmer in the center of the body and cooler at the periphery, 
but certainly with with um, you know in meditation you can also experience fieriness like a light coming up the spine or into the center of the head certain brightening up can occur the fire element uh, the air element breathing in and out or the movement the Buddha called it air moving through the limbs so this clearly is to do with flows of energy moving around in the body and sometimes when you're sitting you get some people get a bit dizzy vertigo because the air element is so disturbed it's kind of moving around they feel you know almost um, a couple of people reported feeling giddy now that's that's air element imbalanced air element and uh, so when when we when my practice is just to harmonize the elements so the air element generally needs some earth so you keep focusing on the earth that is the stability the standing the sitting you know the stable resilient qualities that so you turn your energy that way and you, you withdraw from the experience of air and you attend to the experience of earth if you're too rigid you attend to the experience of water the pliability that the uh, and it can be done moving, breathe, you know, moving around, walking up and down, feeling the softness of the body as it moves subtly, contemplating the softer areas of the body where it feels softer, and learning to relax. Too fiery, too much passion going on. Again, water element tends to harmonize. These have also mental aspects. So as we all know, these uh, some of these elements are used in daily language to represent mind states he's a very firm person she's really got hard-headed she's hard-headed that's earth isn't it you know people like that they're like rock (laughs) and that's not their body that's their 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 mind state or he's really she's really fiery you know what that means she's on fire well you've got a bright idea why is it bright I lit up with that great idea. That's the fire element. It's this flash of light in the head. Oh, wow, great. You're on fire with it. Means you're enthusiastic. It's sort of uh, um, light and breezy first people. Air. Means they don't have any weight. They're light and breezy and drifting and out. That's air. Airy people. Or airy states of mind. And watery is when we get a bit... Um, we are either benevolent. Is someone is very... Um, compassionate like a lake and when it's imbalanced we get soggy we just get moody and have no focus we're too met we're too um you know, we call it she's wet <laughs> i don't know if you have that expression in malaysia <laughs> the wet thinking <laughs> your thinking is all wet it means it's got no sharpness no clarity mm. So, and sometimes when you're in these mind states, then again you use it, you can use a corresponding, an element that opposes it. So somebody who's all fiery needs to get a bit more grounded, earthy, come down to earth. Got all these great blazing ideas, but get practical, get down to earth, you know, get your feet on the ground, we say. Now these, it's interesting, isn't it, that we use this language without really knowing why. <laughs> And yet we do know why, on some level, on the imaginative level, we know exactly what we're talking about. Because some of this language comes in instinctively and naturally because these are experiences we feel. We do feel fiery. 
we do feel earthy, we do feel grounded, we do feel spinning around, we, you know, we do feel light and airy. And these are just useful ways of, of um, describing it. So when you're in the body, forget the map of, um, that you see with your eyes. Forget that. That's uh, not much use. Not much use at all. But at that time, what's more useful is to use this simple map of the elements. The fifth one is the space element. The sense of space around me, plenty of space around me, give me some space, I need some space. It means, you know, take the pressure off. And that also is a help, as a fifth element that's helpful. You can contemplate it inside your neck, your throat, opening up, imagining your body's got a big space inside it when you feel too tight and pressurized and constricted. But uh, you can always uh, access the space around you. There's always space around you. But when we're frightened or pressurized, we tend to lose it. That is, we come, the pressure, constriction, fear, guilt, pressure, drive, tends to shut. The, the body tightens up, the mind tightens up, and we lose space. And then we feel under pressure. This makes a busy life more busy, feel more busy, feel more weighty, more intense. So remember, wherever you are, you've generally got at least a few centimeters of space if you space around you. <laughs> so you, when you're walking, contemplate. I'm walking in space. There's a space. Now your eyes tend to ignore space. They go to the wall. They don't notice space. And this is where life gets intense. If you turn your eyes down and feel your, your skin, so it's free, open space, and that's very relieving because we lo- we lose that in in the pressure, where our minds get so preoccupied they fill up the space. A bit of sidetrack there, but stepping back seems scary during meditation as you're not feeling yourself, seems to be operating a robot, observing a robot (laughs) operating itself. Scary. So, stepping back, say there are, you know, we step back, but it's it's a withdrawal from, say, compulsive activities, and it doesn't mean dissociation. You know, we're just not here at all. Uh, Stepping back allows room for more benevolent qualities to ripen, to open up. Okay, so generally people experience a lot of density, stuff happening to them, things they're thinking about, sense of pressure. You want to step back from that so you can experience a sense of space that is not frozen but allowing. It's a kindly space. The atmosphere of our practice is kindness and goodwill because we're here for our own welfare that is goodwill and we're here with a sense of trust and faith you know we're allowing the good qualities to come forth so it's not a matter of observing now you you know observing is part of practice but you've got to make the place of observing or witnessing or watching or sensing a place that's comfortable If you feel scared, that's not a comfortable place. You withdraw and you bring forth qualities of willingness, trust. I've mentioned these qualities, the indriyas. Are you willing to be here? Are you interested in being here? 
what helps you to be here. So rather than the compulsive driven states or things preoccupying yourself, there's a free moment. Make a little bit of freedom to say, what would be good to bring forth now? That's the invitation. That's why we withdraw from the compulsiveness to allow ourselves to bring forth goodness. As that balance is acquired, then we have a suitable place for contemplation and meditation. So you've got to establish the right place to meditate from. See what I mean? So stepping back precedes meditation. And goodwill precedes meditation. It comes first. We disengage from actions and activities, social contact, da 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 and we establish Dhamma, good heart, open the heart, feel some sense of faith and confidence and energy. When that's there, then we can do focusing. Is inner chat harmful to meditation practice? It's a feature of inner chit-chat, what's called rambling thought or on nagging thought, and I think I've touched upon this theme several times. It can be directly harmful, but uh, best case scenario, if it's just pointless chit-chat, rambling mind, it needs to be handled and understood and steadied and calmed. Now, you can sometimes have recollections are deliberate, not chat, but deliberate thoughtfulness. So we want to be thoughtful, but not thinking. What's the difference between craving and doing things that I really want to do, i.e. realize your dream? Many times one may feel cluttered and confused, thinking everything you do is craving, and ended up we get frustrated with ourselves as we're getting nowhere. This is also suffering. When do you need to let go? Such things require persistence to achieve during a layman's life. I could just let go whenever I encounter difficulty. If I can't just let go, I would not be growing. So what is it called? It's craving. So there's different kinds of desire. And there's desire which is motivation, which we call chanda. And desire which is craving, which we call tanha. And it's important to differentiate between the two. Craving is always trying to take something in. If you, very simply, it's thirst. You see, that's, that's the literally means thirst. When you're thirsty, you want to put, get something in, take something in. And chanda is interest, and it means motivation. You don't you want to take something, you want to actually offer something, bring something forth. Right? So one is sucking in, and one is bringing forth. They, they can get confused. So motivation, but then motivation, chanda, that kind of desire, is generally or should be something as specific and decisive. You d- decide, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm interested in, this is uh, useful, it's profitable, and you check it. Is this okay? And then, right, then you put your energy behind it. Chanda's sequence, chanda virya chitta vimangsa which is the four bases of success chanda virya chitta vimangsa chanda interest motivation virya energy chitta bringing you putting your heart into it and being aware of what you're doing and vimangsa 
deliberate investigating. What was that? How's that? How's that? Does it work? Did it not work? What's the result of that? So these are considered uh, bases, skillful bases, such as what it takes to build this vihara. It took a lot of chanda, virya, chitta vimoksa, <laughs> and we are grateful. The tanha is to do with I want, I want to have for me. Now the two get mixed up when we're motivated because we want um, fame, success, we're chasing something. And it's really just uh, in order to feel, to become something else. You know? This is where it gets a bit mixed up. There's an element of what you call bhavatana, craving to become something. And at first you can't really be too picky because most meditation practice has got a bit of bhavatana in it. I want to become better than I am. I want to be happy. And that's more or less where you, you can't start from total purity. If you start with a little bit of bhavatana, <laughs> I want to become, you know, I want to become enlightened or something like that. And But then the meditation will generally, after a while you wise up out of that because you definitely don't get enlightened like that. And you begin to recognize as you get some calm or some ease that as soon as you hold on to it, then the practice loses balance. And as soon as, because you want to have it again. And one, one of the great failures is to try to have an experience again. If it's, if it's true and authentic, it will come by itself. But the Bhavatana says, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And now I've gone down. My meditation is as good as it was before. And now I've gone down. I want to go up again. This is where the tanha is getting in. I want to be something. Meditator, some days are good, some days are not good. Some days go a few months through a difficult patch, dealing with some difficult stuff. Doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. In fact, you're getting worse. You keep plugging away at it. Difficult starts, stuff starts to fade. You get wisdom. Well, that's what it was about. And, ah, ah, moved on. You know, it's like that. It's never straight. It's always, this is the terrain. But eventually it sort of levels out to something more level. And so the the sense of accumulation of how long I can sit or how many good mind states I got, this is this is the mark of Bhavatana. And uh, if you just hang on to that, then what happens is your chanda starts to dwindle because you only want the good stuff. And then the, your your sense of motivation Oh, I'm not getting any good results anymore. I'll give up, you know. So at that point, tanha annihilates chanda. You have to be willing to be with difficult stuff. That, that takes chanda, and also takes faith, confidence. When the mind is calm and clear, free from hindrances, how do we continue from there? Upachara samadhi is normally translated as access concentration. Assuming upachara has been translated as access, what is this level of samadhi able to access? How do the suttas explain or describe upachara samadhi? What should I do after I'm sitting peacefully, calmly, without thought? Shall I just enjoy the blissfulness? When the mind becomes um, calm, then remember we're trying to keep our wisdom faculty awake all the time. If we imbalance, we tend to not scrutinizing, the scrutiny goes. Uh, maybe that's okay for a while. And it's certainly good to enjoy bliss. Yeah, wonderful. 
So just soak it up. Soak up the bliss while it's there. Get it in. Know know it. Fully know it. Uh, Know why it's blissful. And perhaps you begin to also know there's this nagging doubt, what next? Then that's a hindrance. Um, So relaxing, relaxing into that which is blissful, but also knowing this is state is like this. It's how is it? Describe it. Give it a color. How big is it? Is it small? Is it big? Is it hot? Is it warm? You know, you don't have to have words for it, but you keep your your sense of wisdom, your discernment clear. And you also discern, recollect what what are the causes, what's absent. Certain hindrances are absent, what's present. And this state has arisen because of causes and conditions. What, what are the causes and conditions that generated that? And this state is impermanent. Now, I'm not saying you think all those thoughts in, in the brief span of time I've, I've mentioned them, but have a slow, what's this? What's this? Who is this? Who, who does this belong to? Is it, any, you know, where does it, where, what is its nature? Is it, uh, what is present in that? And you scrutinize it. That's how you, you cultivate that. You know, don't be in a hurry. I mean, if, if you're feeling blissful and you're awake and you're not falling asleep and if you're balanced, stay with that. And, but then you're gradually, your, your wisdom faculty begins to get more normal. You begin to be able to scan it and what's this? How is this? Is anything else here to be let go of? And generally with that, there's some sense of uh, wanting to have it or wanting to get a bit more. And you keep letting go of that. Upachara Samadhi. Well, how do the suttas explain or describe Upachara Samadhi? They don't. There's no such thing as Upachara Samadhi in the suttas. It's um, a term that's been generated subsequently. So they generally differentiate between kanika, like very momentary. Upachara means there's uh, steadiness, but there's also ability to think or conceive or direct. And, and apana samadhi, which is a bit so the mind is so immersed in samadhi that it more or less got no volition. It can't direct anything. It just sort of soaks up the uh, this absorption. But the suttas don't mention it, so... They just say samadhi. I would say that putting the language aside, you know, whether there is or isn't, or why the Buddha didn't mention it, why people do mention it, is people who can experience uh, a kind of samadhi which is definitely composed but is able to direct or attend to things. And uh, they experience the samadhi where the mind more or less just becomes... um, all it can do is absorb. And by and large, it's more useful to have a, a mind that can do both. You know, there's the, you, you soak up, as I said, you soak up the, the enjoyment as it is, and then you keep your wisdom faculty attuned, and eventually over time, you begin to be able to scan those states and not get too blown away by it, or proud of it, or greedy for it. And this is how you you, know, you keep your wisdom in line with your samadhi. How to balance faith and doubt? They they counteract each other. You can't. Uh, faith is not really belief. 
Faith is not the same as belief. Belief postulates or conceives of something and then believes in it. And faith is just a sense of openness, more like confidence. And you're open to, you feel that you have what it takes to try, but you're not believing in something. Believing in something creates some external object or idea that you then believe in. And believing is, uh, you know, this is what a lot of religions are based on, belief. Believe in some deity or deities or whatever. And it isn't helpful for Dhamma practice. Belief is not helpful. Uh, faith means, I first have faith in yourself. <laughs> and then what kind of qualities can you, can you rely upon? What kind of qualities in yourself and others can you rely upon? Check it out. And you listen to the Buddha's teaching, you listen to that. Mm. Be skeptical. Mm. Maybe, maybe not. And maybe one thing, oh, that sounds interesting, I'll try that. Let me try it. Ah, he got it right. He's right. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the Buddha said the process is you, you, you have enough confidence, I'll listen, I'll listen to the teaching. And then what is said, you don't, you don't adopt it. But you take it in and you give it your own consideration. Sounds reasonable. And then you practice it. You practice it and say, yeah, that's right. Then that's a suitable basis of faith. And so this is how you, you build it up. Doubt is generally associated with um, not direct practice, but thinking about it. Whenever you think about it, uh, you can get into doubt. Thought, thought thinking takes you to doubt. Simple equation. If you think, you doubt. Because thinking is like writing in the sky or writing in water. You think it, it's gone. Maybe the moon's made out of cheese. Maybe it's not. Who knows? <laughs> think is about something you don't know. And so this is where it can be problematic to have too much study. Because you read all these things and think, oh wow, that sounds... I wonder what that is. Amazing. This, that, this, that, and these states, and this attainment, and stream entries, and gracious me, and flying through the air. Wow. I mean, wow, you know. So, and then you try to get, like, like it says in the book, and then you don't <laughs> quite get it like it in the book. Or you get tangled up in these terms like upachara, samadhi, kanika samadhi is it upachara, is it first jhana, second is it, is it half a jhana or three quarters of a jhana when do I get into jhana, will a flag be flat, will it be a bell goes off when I get into jhana, well, how do I know for sure that I'll be in jhana don't, don't try to get into jhana, forget about it if, you, if that's what your mind does just practice <laughs> there isn't a, like a a, a signal that goes off when you get into jhana. <laughs> Ding! Now in jhana. <laughs> so sometimes we ask too much of words. You know, you ask them to be harder and more precise than they are. And so if you're doing that, you think, what's the state? I'm meditating. Half my mind is has got this book in. <laughs> you know, then you just. <laughs> You're never in anything, <laughs> apart from doubt. <laughs> Am I doing like Ajahn Sujito does? I don't know. He says this, maybe it's that. Forget about Ajahn Sujito. Just whatever's landed in your, in your chitta that you feel, oh, that's interesting, do that. 
the rest of it, you know, leave it somewhere and you can pick it up later. But So you should only take up the bit that, uh, that your mind lights up to or is interested in. Then you can practice that. The rest of it tends to remain, just gets a bit cluttered. Too much just conceptual stuff. So when I talk, you should probably about 10% of what I say is useful. <laughs> but he's got this 10%, she got that 10%. He, you know, everybody gets a little 10%. But I don't think you want to listen to what, take it all in. Because <laughs> you're trying to figure out, measure your practice in accordance with some idea. And then your mind is divided. But if you begin to recognize and fathom and feel comfortable and calm and you know the hindrance isn't there, there's no ill will, feel happy, enjoy it. And then you can call it what you like. You know, because you can get to these sort of like comparative things where, did you get Jana? Did he get Jana? She looks like she's got it. I don't think I've got it. Or maybe I'm bragging. I shouldn't do it. So it just. (laughs) Okay, I think that's enough for today. Thank you for your questions. Hope some of it's been useful. 10%. Come back to other things later. Thank you.